If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. We are almost halfway through the AFC South for our annual off-season division preview shows. This year, slightly different. We're going team by team in individual episodes, not covering each individual division in like Lord of the Rings <laughs> length episodes. Uh, we're breaking it up to be a little bit more consumable this year. So today is all about the Houston Texans. Um, and I, I, I'm both looking forward to this and not looking forward to it at all because there's, there's a lot of hope in the organization and there's also a lot of reasons to be pessimistic. So we'll, we'll try to be fair. We'll try to break down both sides of, you know, why some people might be, uh, higher than you think on Houston's chances this year and why some people might think that they're going to be, you know, in the mix for potentially Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, whoever you happen to like at first overall, um, there's really no in-between opinions on these Texans. It's either going to be ah, better than you think or, oh my God, they're the worst team in the league. But before we get into all that, uh, EJ, buddy, how you doing? What are you drinking tonight? I'm well. And yeah, sometimes when you pull the hood up, you find rat's nests. Sometimes there's a beautiful engine under there. Uh, you know, it's going to depend on the viewer as to what they see with the Texans. Um, I am drinking grapefruit seltzer for this one. And it's interesting. You say nobody has middle-of-the-road opinions. I might have a middle-of-the-road opinion, but yeah, we will try and be fair. Um, they're gonna be, they're gonna be interesting. And if there is a death knell to an NFL team for me, it's boring, mm. right? And I don't think they'll be boring. They might not be the interesting you want, but they will be interesting. And there's some great storylines. We'll talk about those as we dive in. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, I got old faithful. I, I decided by the end of the AFC South, I was going to end up killing this, uh, Basil Hayden dark rye, which <laughs> is a very, very nice bottle, which is, uh, it's Basil Hayden rye blended with port. Mm. And it basically just tastes like bottled Manhattan. So it's been one of my favorites for a while and I'm almost out of it. So I was like, eh, might as well free up a little bit of space in the home bar back there by just killing the bottle tonight. Um, now first things first, as with all teams, we're going to do a little bit of a 2021 recap before we get into everything that has happened since the end of the season. Uh, looking back on the 2021 Texans, they probably, weirdly enough as it is for a 4-13 and team, exceeded expectations in large part to Davis Mills playing like a top three rookie quarterback in the entire league last year. He actually was, dare I say, stunningly good <laughs> considering the circumstances and the roster around him. But Texans ended up going 4-13. and 13. They still had a top three pick in the draft, but a lot of people penciled them in for potentially going winless last year. So four wins above that expectation is pretty damn good. Uh, they did come in third in the division, believe it or not, uh, because, well, 
The Jags were the Jags. We talked about them yesterday. Uh, home record of two and seven. Road record two and six. They did, uh, you know, sneak a couple road wins in there, which for a bottom tier team is actually a pretty encouraging sign if you can get a win on the road. Um, but their last five—that's actually what's what's most intriguing to me—is they actually finished on a relatively keyword relatively strong note at two and three. Again, slightly below five hundred, but considering what they were at before that run which was 2 and 10 finishing you know the last 5 weeks 2 and 3 was pretty encouraging and again we still saw that growth from Davis Mills i thought the defense played better as the season went on um the offensive line went through a lot last year because they had a bajillion different combinations cuz People kept getting hurt. Larry Tunsil tore a ligament in his thumb in October and didn't come back. You know, Titus Howard was guard and tackle, and Sharping was in and out. I mean, they had eight different guys play significant snaps last year for the offensive line. So never really got settled, but they did allow less pressure as the year went on because that kind of Island of Misfit toys gelled a little bit. So it, it was pretty encouraging over the back half of the year where despite having arguably the worst roster in the league, they still were not the worst team in the league. And I think that's a credit to a lot of different people in that building. Overall, for you, looking at how they finished the season, where do you see the Texans now? Do you think that they are going to build off that momentum? Or do you think that they're pretty much right back where they were last year, which is having maybe the worst roster in the league? It's not the worst. They have made improvements. Uh, we talked. We highlighted their draft class as one of the really good draft classes in the NFL. The coaching change bothers me a little bit, but not a ton. <laughs> uh, they did overachieve, and that's weird for a four-win team, but yes, that had a lot to do with Davis Mills, but it's also a credit to last year's coaching staff, who basically got a pretty raw deal. Everybody penciled them in for winless and lousy, and they did better than that by a fair stretch. If you look at those last five games, yeah, they finished two and three in their last five, but their streak was they went out on two losses. So if you go five games back, they went two and one, were looking pretty good to finish strong, then had a two-game slide at the end to even out to two and three. So they showed fight throughout the season. They challenged teams that a lot of people thought they wouldn't be in games with. I hope they build on that momentum. I think Davis Mills will definitely build on his own personal momentum, and that will take them quite a ways. Uh, how they manage the talent around them, we're going to talk about it. They retained a lot of their own talent, but there was also it's one of the teams that has a lot of shift. They had a bunch of losses and a bunch of additions, so they do have some chemistry to build on both sides of the ball i'm hopeful that they will improve from last year's mark uh do i think this is a sort of worst to first or second to worst to first cinderella story i i don't think they're there yet well you kind of touched on a little bit the um the firing of david cully i did not expect to have this position when the season started but i felt like he kind of got a raw deal in that, again, this team was expected to go winless. He held the locker room together through uh, through something that was very difficult for them to go through. Um, 
and they still showed up. They played hard every week. They competed with teams that massively outgunned them. Um, you know, he had a rookie quarterback yeah. <laughs> that, that went out and played really well, despite his best weapon. Some would say only plus weapon being Braden Cooks last year. You know, they have some young guys that we have high expectations for. But again, it's it's Davis Mills and Brandon Cooks versus the world last year. And they went four and thirteen. They were not the worst team in the league, and I, I felt like David Cauley did a a pretty pretty good job keeping the room together. Now, in terms of some of the other stuff that a head coach is responsible for, whether it's you know game planning, time management, all that kind of stuff, yeah, we can argue that that was mediocre at best. But mm-hmm. I mean, it was his first year doing it, you know, and I. I just I felt like he deserved another shot, you know, one year removed from all the toxicity that was leading into 2021, especially now that Sean Watson's gone. I wanted to see what he could do with that stink no longer hanging over the building. And uh, it was one and done. And I, I was kind of weirded out by that. Now, we love Lovey. Again, culture builder, great guy in the locker room to have, you know, upstanding guy. Nick Casario seems like, a, you know, a perfectly fine adult in the room. Um, I just, man, I, I I, do feel bad for David Culley. And it's not a shot at anybody that's still there. I just, it didn't sit with me that he still got shafted no matter what, despite having better results than than we expected. That was my take on it, was... What more could he have done? And yes, you can talk about in-game management decisions and were they up to snuff with the top coaches in the league? The answer is no. It was his first year doing it in a rough situation, and he wasn't abysmal. It's not like he pitched five games with bad decisions. It wasn't at that level. There were yeah. decisions you could absolutely not back and say, mm, I, you know, I wish he wouldn't have done that. But my thing was what else could he have possibly achieved in that situation coming off a very rough off season before zero expectations basically no one would take the job david cully was uh, conservatively about fifth in line for that job and (laughs) everybody just went they're gonna be awful they're gonna be bottom feeders they're gonna bounce off the bottom they are a guaranteed number one pick And they were better than that. And you started to see that pretty early in the season. Like, even though they weren't necessarily winning, they looked competent, right? They looked together. And as the year went on, especially with Davis Mills, they started to get better, right? They looked competent and went up from there. And I thought that was a real credit because that was in no way guaranteed with the Texans heading into the season. And... To get the quick hook after the season, it felt like it was pre-decided, right? It kind of was like, at the end of this year, David Culley's not going to be the coach, short of making the playoffs, which was never going to happen. Like, anything he does is not going to be good enough. We already have our mind made up that we're going to make a move. I don't know why that was, but it did feel like he achieved a ton. What more could he have done in a bad situation? Now, again, the decks are cleared. You have more talent. Yeah, you want to you want to see the guy not get a quick hook, and he got the quickest hook, one and done. Didn't, didn't sit with me well, um, said so on social media. Just felt sort of like there's unanswered questions there. Again, like you said, nothing against the people that have come in, but 
just in the case of David Culley, doesn't feel like the Texans did him straight. Well, speaking of the semi-new coaching staff, because it's both new and not new at the same time, why don't we kind of look at the overarching command structure here? Nick Casario, second year at GM, um, again, has made a lot of moves that I absolutely love. Um, Does kind of feel like, as I mentioned, the adults are are running things again, um, and that there are certain people in the front office that maybe have less influence than they did in years past. Thank God for that. Uh, Under him, you got Lovey Smith, who was year one at head coach for the Texans, but two years with the organization. He came in and was D.C., and he's retaining that D.C. title in addition to being head coach. So he's he's running the team and the defense and then kind of leaving the offense entirely to Pep Hamilton, who is year one as the full offensive coordinator. Last year, he was the passing game coordinator and quarterback coach. Um, in order to retain him, they had to give him that kind of full promotion uh, because he got a lot of interest around the league, especially for what he did with Davis Mills and what he did with Justin Herbert the year before that. You know, he's seen as uh, as a young QB whisperer, and he has one of the best resumes in the entire league at that specifically. So that was paramount that that they retained him, and they did. Uh, and then you got Frank Ross, second year as the uh, Texan special teams coordinator. So even though there was change at the top, there's a remarkable amount of stability through a head coaching change at the coordinator level, which is great. Um, By the way, Frank Ross uh, was a Colts assistant special teams coach and before that was a scout under Nick Casario for the Patriots. So he's uh, he's got kind of an interesting history as well. Uh, Notable coaches under them, you got Ben McDaniels on offense. He's the wide receiver coach and pass game coordinator, Josh McDaniels brother. Um, And then on defense, you got this is one that you found that I was fascinated by Kenyon Jackson. His uh, he's the son of Keith Jackson. And when you first wrote that down, I was like, the Packers tight end? And yes, absolutely the Packers tight end. Five-time Pro Bowler, won a ring Mm -hmm. uh, in Green Bay with Brett Favre. I had no idea that that was the same family tree. And uh, fascinating to me. Also makes me feel a little old. Well, certainly that happens a lot to me these days. (laughs) But the connection with the Texan staff and why he ended up there is he played for Lovey at Illinois. Mm Mm-hmm. And so Lovey met him in Illinois, had him as a player, thought that he wanted to bring him in, um, ends up on the defensive staff for the Texans. And I really think Pep Hamilton is the it's the straw that stirs the drink here. He's the guy that got that performance out of Davis Mills, which really unexpectedly put the Texans in a positive position heading into this year. They didn't have to take a quarterback. They had an answer that they could say, unlike David Culley, let's give this guy a second year and see what he can do. And Lovey needs that. If you're going to bring in Lovey as the coach, head coach of a football team, the first question based on his resume, both in college and the pros is who's running the offense. Mm -hmm. And if it's Pep Hamilton, the answer is like, okay, that's that's a solid combination. We can do that. So as you said, the Texans uh, were forced by other team's interest, but also wise to say, nope, you've done well, not only last year, but the year before that. You've got a great resume. You're an ascending young coach. We want to keep you. And we want to put you 
honestly in the most important chair in the building because the NFL is an offensive league. You need to score points. Your quarterback needs to drive those points. And Pep Hamilton's got his finger on that pulse very clearly for the Texans. So he really feels like the linchpin to this whole structure, letting Cully go, bringing in Lovey, being able to sort of have Lovey really be a DC with head coach title and say, nope, Make your choices on offense and and take us to the promised land. Get us some points. Well, keep in mind, so Pep also, you know, back at Stanford, um, Mm -hmm. he was the offensive coordinator for Andrew Luck in Luck's last year at Stanford, went to the Colts and was Luck's OC uh, his second through fourth year. I think they went to the AFC Championship together in his last year at OC there. Um, You know, he was the assistant head coach and quarterbacks coach with the Browns after that in 2016 which i believe was petton under under mike petton i think it's um, tough to tough to there's been a lot of browns, browns coaches so it's <laughs> tough to keep track it was the year after kyle shannon no two years after kyle shannon was there good lord there have been a lot of coaches with the browns yes. um also spent time at michigan um and then went to the chargers in 2020 where he turned justin herbert into a absolute freaking demigod so um just looking at the (laughs) the last three young quarterbacks in the nfl that he's worked with being justin herbert andrew luck davis mills i trust him i trust him a lot and i I think that he was the most important coaching retention i guess you can say uh, out of everybody there now in terms of losses we'll hit up a free agency losses first you know, there, there's a lot of names in this chart, um, but keep in mind there weren't a whole lot of a lot of stars on the Houston roster last year. So pretty much everybody they lost, uh, or at least most everybody they lost, is somewhat replaceable. Uh, Jerron Christian, you know, was very serviceable as a backup tackle for them after Larry Tunsil went down halfway through the year. Justin Reed is obviously the one that hurts the most. Um, he's now with the Chiefs to be... Uh, you know, a, a big part of that safety trio. Traditionally, they always like to run three safety sets in Kansas City, so he's going to be a great player for them. Uh, massive get for Casey. Lonnie Johnson is also uh, there with him in, uh, in Kansas City right now. They traded him over, and he he has played safety in the past, but he wants to be a corner. Didn't really mesh with the coaching staff super well, um, really regardless of who it was the last few years. There always just seemed to be something going on with Lonnie. We we never really figured out what what the problem was, but there was some sort of conflict there. Eventually, he got out of the organization. He got his wish. He's going to go to Kansas City and hopefully, for his sake, play corner because that's what he really wants to do. Um, Terod Taylor is with the Giants now. That was actually low-key a loss that stung a bit because I, I felt like he's a good presence to have around Davis Mills. Um, you know, nothing against um, Kyle Allen, who's the current veteran backup, but I've always loved it when uh, when Terod Taylor's, you know, there with a young gun because it seems like wherever he goes, young quarterbacks do well. He's a very valuable backup. He's like, um, remember Charlie Whitehurst? He's like the new Charlie Whitehurst for me, <laughs> where it's like, yeah, he's he's perfect. He's perfect as the number two veteran holding clipboard. Um, you know, contributing to game planning, all that kind of stuff. He's he's perfect for that. So sucks that he's in New York now, but great for Danny Dimes. Jacob Martin, another low-key kind of big loss. He led the team in pressures last year. He's a fire breather off the edge. He fits right in with that Jets defensive front. 
you know, getting 30 snaps a game. They're going to come at you in waves. Uh, we'll talk more about him when we do the Jets episode, but that was, in my opinion, kind of a, a kind of a stinging loss for Houston. Um, Terrence Mitchell, veteran corner, got a lot of snaps for them last year, played like 70% of the snaps. Um, they did infuse the, the secondary with young talent, but still would have liked to keep him around as a veteran presence. And then Demarcus Walker, again, another down eater, uh, big, big edge presence, uh, signed for less than 2 million with the Titans, which I thought was a pretty good deal for him. So again, nothing earth shattering here, but they did lose some stable veteran presences, present presences, presences. <laughs> What's the, what's some stable pro, pro veterans let's just stable veterans that uh that did play a lot of snaps for them so overall um yeah i i understand why why they had to lose some of the guys they did but man i wish some of them got to stay i think it's low-key stuff that again if someone like you that's close to the team feels that i i felt the tyra taylor one uh that's why i highlighted him on the sheet for all the reasons you stated, I think people looking from the outside, casual NFL fans looking from the outside at this list will say, ah, you know, yeah, Justin Reed, sure. Almost 70% of their snaps, obvious starter in the league, no matter where he goes. Lonnie Johnson, hey, a draft pick that didn't really pan out. You know, good size. I think he's a good fit in KC. We'll talk about him when we get to the Chiefs episode. Terod Taylor is, for me, one of the best backups in the league because I really do feel like he's one of a handful of backups, not only that is uh, great with the clipboard, with the young quarterback, but if he has to come in and play, I legit think he has juice for three or four games. I think he can win you, you know, three of four if he's got to take you, you know, the old quarter of a season poll. Uh, so low-key great pickup by Dave Wolden Giants to to sit him behind Danny Dimes, but a, definitely a loss for Pep Hamilton because he had him in uh, Los Angeles as well mm-hmm. and then uh, brought him in. That certainly helped accelerate Davis Mills. So uh, Jacob Martin, I'll I'll lump Jacob Martin and Demarcus, Demarcus Walker together. That was a lot of pressure and a lot of snaps quite frankly for the Texans if you add the two of them up it's almost as if you sort of welded them together that was one (laughs) really good edge player they lost them both they did make moves to replace him and then sort of the ageless Terrence Mitchell we were talking about him pre-show he's played for like eight teams in the NFL he's a very well-traveled corner with you know experience that can fill in and again played almost 70 percent of the snaps for the Texans last year so um, got to find a way to replace those snaps no major losses but again kind of some low-key ones that felt like maybe greater uh, to the trained eye than they were to the casual observer from the outside yeah because I mean they're, they only had three guys over 30 pressures last year, and they lost two of them. The only other one was Malik Collins, who they did re-sign, which is probably a good transition to to getting to all the, the veterans that they did or that they were able to retain. Again, a lot of names here. Um, most of these guys are more special teamers, but um, the ones that we wanted to highlight, of course, Malik Collins was second on the team in pressures for them, You know, played a significant amount of snaps, over half the snaps. So he's, uh, he's a pretty important presence as a rotational interior rusher for them uh justin Britt they retained at center um they retained christian kirksey 
to be their uh, probably their Mike linebacker, I would imagine. They do have a whole bunch of smaller linebackers. Like they retain uh, Kamu Grusher Hill for four million. Remember, they still have um, they have Jalen Reeves Maven. They have Kevin Pierre uh, Kevin Pierre Louis. So they have a whole bunch of like lighter, faster linebackers. But if I was willing to bet, I would say that Christian Harris is going to be the one of those lighter linebackers that plays next to Christian Kirksey. Well, Christian Kirksey's like the traditional Mike, you know, the bang around and between the tackles type guy. So um, pretty important that they kept him. Um, Eric Murray at safety and Desmond King at cor- technically at corner they retained. But Murray, King, and another rookie we'll talk about, Jalen Petrie, all are that like hybrid nickel safety corner type guys. So they just have a million of those as well. Inter- interested to see how they all fit together. Uh, and then last but not least, probably the most important one was Brandon Cooks, who they kept around, uh, talk about ageless wonder, even though he's not like that old, it's just, he's been productive every single year since he got in the league in 2014 in that legendary receiver class, you know, it was him, Odell, Mike Evans, um, Devonte Adams was in that class. I think Keenan Allen was in that class if I remember correctly. Uh, in 2014 and Brandon Cooks has been as much or more productive than all of them because you can pretty much just (laughs) line him up for a thousand yards every year and not have to worry about it doesn't matter the situation he's in doesn't matter who's throwing him the ball doesn't matter what team he's playing for what offense he's in he's going to get a thousand yards so you know the Texans kind of retaining him to be that stable veteran number one for for Davis Mills was incredibly important and um, especially considering the modern receiver market, would you rather have Christian Kirk for 18 or Brandon Cooks for 19.8? I would say Brandon Cooks is probably the better value there. Certainly the better receiver of the two based on demonstrated ability. And I don't think you're wrong. The linchpin of the retained class, the re-signed class for the Texans, of which there are many, but the most important by far got to kind of keep that triumvirate together you got to keep pep hamilton whispering in davis mills ear and you got to have somebody to throw to and that somebody in the texans is the known known the one we've had our hands on and understand and who knows our quarterback knows our offense and that's brandon cooks and uh looks like a bargain by current rates if you add up his production uh his camp might be feeling a bit shorted now that all these other contracts have been signed (laughs) because if you stack up his productivity over his time in the league versus a lot of guys that just got paid a lot of money um i would say he's underpaid uh but that triangle is gonna work very very well and as we get down into the draft in a minute we'll talk about adding you know if you're talking about the three-headed monster on the field it's quarterback running back and your top wide receiver all those zero rb folks from fantasy might say it's your two top wide receivers and your quarterback but still need a runner in this day and age and they they added a couple of good ones um christian kirksey is the solid thumper again not a guy i want to pass coverage a lot but he will hit you and he played a ton of snaps for them almost 70 percent of the snaps so again um Nose Lovey's system can be that leader in the middle and that solid physical presence. Desmond King's kind of everything. I wouldn't put him at corner. Yes, he can play nickel, but he always felt like, even coming out of Iowa, that third safety, you know, that mm-hmm. box safety that can play near the line and disrupt things. He's really good at that role. 
Murray, the other half of their safety tandem. Uh, they keep, again, played two-thirds of the snaps. This is not somebody that was on the bench uh, behind Justin Reed. So played that other safety position, and again, they retain him. The safety spots are really important in Lovey's defense, so they didn't want to lose both of their big snap getters uh, all the way back. Justin Britt, I think it's going to be the guy in the middle for them. Um, certainly if you're looking at last year's snap counts, we were talking about best five with the offensive line before. We're not, we're not really sure. It's going to be a really interesting shuffle for them, but I think Justin Britt definitely has a place in that best five. That place is likely at center. Uh, and then Malik Collins right across the line from him in practice every day is that center tree stump for the defense that is immovable. It's crazy that he got 30 plus pressures last year. Mm -hmm. Like, not the kind of player I would think that would do that. The fact that he did is really a credit to him. I like Willie Collins a lot, liked him coming out. And he's been that guy that just mucks up an offensive game plan because you, he basically takes up two and a half, maybe three yards on a good day and says, nope, you're not going to go through here, so you're going to have to do something else. Uh, Texans obviously liked his role in that defense. I think a fair deal at eight and a half million a year. Uh, for the role he plays, Lovey can Lovey has always liked those big trunks in the middle. Whether it was Ted Washington, um, doesn't matter. You know he likes to protect his linebackers with a big defensive tackle, and Malik Collins is that guy for the Texans. He's uh, he's got a lot of like Timmy Jernigan to his game. You know where he's not like well he's he's definitely not as big as Ted Washington. But no. in terms of just ability to anchor and use leverage because he's on the shorter side. And so he's just as hard to move as somebody who's, you know, 6'4", 340. So even though he's got, you know, 25, 30 less pounds on him because he's so much lower and he's got a really thick trunk, he's he's basically accomplishes the same thing. And he plays everything from one to three for them, you know, on, on depending on personnel groupings and what front they're in and stuff like that so he he does have that kind of timmy jernigan versatility who also did that kind of role but being a little bit better as a pass rusher than than timmy was to be quite honest so uh he is a key piece for them um and i'm, and I'm happy to see that he got retained now in terms of additions from other teams from outside the building that they brought in they're trying to replace their other top two pressure getters uh with a platoon a platoon of all platoons. They got Jerry Hughes, um, one of the one of the most productive and I would say fan favorite bills of the last ten years. Um, you know, brought him in for only five million. I get it; he's thirty four, but he's still productive. He still gets a lot of pressure. He's still got juice. So five million for a, a productive edge rusher. Sign me up for that. Um, they got Agbonia Akoronkwo. Akoronkwo. Almost got it. Almost got it on the first try. I you know, I practiced it, and I nailed it every time, and then we of actually you record did. the show, and I fuck it up, of course. Yeah. Oh, God. But welcome him in welcome to podcasting. Welcome to podcasting. Never goes right the first time. Um, so him and, and Rasheem Green, uh, they poached from the NFC, NFC West a little bit for a combined, again, of like $5, 6000000 million between the two of them. They're absolutely trying to platoon their edge rush, and – it might be a little while until they quote unquote get the guy 
you know, to be their new J.J. Watt, their new Whitney Merciless, their new Clowney, their new Mario Williams. They do have a history at that position of having, you know, stud edge rushers. They don't have one right now. Whether they get it next year's draft or the year after that, eventually they'll get one. But for now, it is all about cheap platoon. And they will pay the same amount of money for six guys that somebody else might pay for one. And we'll see if it works. (laughs) I'm not super enthusiastic about it, but we'll see if it works. This feels a little bit like at least Nick Casario. I'm not sure if Lovey's really on board because Lovey does tend to like having the guy that's throughout his coaching history he's more comfortable with that now coaches adapt and at least from the personnel gathering standpoint this is Nick Casario going with the modern hockey line approach that we're seeing really floating up from college where four guys switch out they play a series or two and depending on how long those series are it's it's almost like a pitch count they're gone next line comes in and it's a full line it's four fresh guys and while they might not be doing that with the interior they could again with some of the additions they have but they're definitely doing with edge you don't want a guy like jerry hughes at 34 and his size playing seven or eight hundred snaps that's that's not a recipe for success you want him playing like 400 really fast ones Mm -hmm. and okoronkwo same thing uh, at his size, you don't want him slamming in there, you know, setting the edge, banging against the run. He can do it, but you'd much rather have him do it fresh, right? So, again, bring him in for a series or two if they're short series and swap them and keep them fresh. And that might represent growth for Lovey, or it might just be Nick saying, no, no, this is the way we're going to do it. Here's your tools. You figure out how to arrange them, but I'm not going to go out and pay you know, tens of millions for one guy and put all all my eggs in one basket. Uh, we're not a team at that place right now. We used to be. That's not how we're going to go forward. Also, let's be honest. Even if they offered Devon Miller, if they offered to Chandler Jones, would they have come? Probably not. <laughs> you know, no. All of these, you know, future Hall of Fame veterans that that still have juice, that still could be double-digit sack guys, they're not going to Houston right now because they're Houston's not close to getting a ring and Buffalo is. So it's just the reality of the situation. They're not going to get the benefit of the doubt and they're not going to be able to pull those kind of free agents until they win more games. And maybe they can this year. Cause I mean, shit, if they went four and 13 last year, they got a better team this year than last year. They could probably do better than that, but it might be a couple years before they're able to pull that kind of name to be the guy for them. Yeah, um, they're going to have to demonstrate those wins before yes. those top free agents say, oh, yeah, I, I want to go play with Davis Mills because I think he can get me at least deep into the playoffs. And until then, it's going to be hard to get marquee names. I think we need to touch on the secondary uh, a little bit. Well, it's unless they do what Jacksonville does, which is overpay by such an amazing amount right. that they say like, oh yeah, fine, fuck it, I'll go there. Yeah. You know, yeah. but you have to that's do not one Nick Casario's style. He's not going to pay $18 million for Christian Kirk. He's not going to do it. No, you got to do one of the two. You're absolutely right. If you're not going to have the, the sort of path to wins or the path to postseason glory, you got to say, here's your bag. It's way bigger than any bag that anybody else is going to offer you. Uh, please come down to Houston. So the secondary got some upgrades too. Steve Nelson and Fabian Moreau 
both guys that are going to play significant snaps, played significant snaps at their previous teams, uh, Nelson with the Eagles, Moreau with the Falcons, they're going to play real roles with the moves in the secondary for the Texans. I would expect we'd see both of those guys who were low-key, very solid players. Again, this is the Casario MO, not the superstar, not the CB1 that I'm going to go out and chuck a huge bag at, but mm, two guys that played pretty well that, again, more casual NFL fans, or if you're not a fan of, you know, the Eagles or the Falcons, you might not have watched last year. They were solid, and they're going to have big roles in Lovey's secondary, and those are important roles if you look at his defense historically. I would imagine the starting two will be Steven Nelson and Derek Stingley. There's five guys who could all be nickel, because uh, you got Tavir Thomas, you got Desmond King, you got uh, Petrie, uh, uh, I throw a dartboard at the safeties. Really, any of them can do it. Uh, Tristan McCollum, if you want, like a uh, again another bigger guy, maybe. Yeah. I mean, even <laughs> Lonnie Fabian Johnson, Moreau, part do <laughs> exactly. Like I, I am fascinated to see where the corners end up in camp because right now I think the only two that I can guess are Stingley and Nelson, mm-hmm. and then everything else is up in the air. Moreau could be the nickel. Tavir Thomas could be the nickel. King could be the nickel. Petrie could be the nickel. I got nothing. I, I have no idea. But hopefully by like mid-August, we'll have a general idea. Either way, it, this isn't like a, oh, I don't know who's going to be the starting corners because everybody's bad. Like this isn't like a 2021 <laughs> Bears situation where it's like we got Jalen Johnson and nothing. It's yeah, more like we got a bunch of guys that can play. And they just got to beat each other out. So I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic than, say, I was for Chicago last year. That's for sure. Yeah, you should be with Tavier Thomas. I would be a little bit – I'd be a little bit personally upset if it wasn't Thomas at nickel because he played really well down the stretch. Mm-hmm. He was extremely solid. And we talked about this in our, in our breakout players and our underappreciated players that nickel is a really difficult role, especially for young players to assume that mantle – because they have so many responsibilities. They need to play going forward, going back, every snap. They need to be physical. They need to be fast. They need to be really smart. Tavier Thomas is a name you might not know as an outside fan. If you're not a Texans fan, you should get to know his name. He is a very solid player at nickel, and I would be... I'd be a little bit disappointed. He would have to regress, I think, uh, to get knocked off that pedestal. I would like to see him continue his extension, ascension because he is very talented and you know i wouldn't even say loki exciting he's an exciting younger player that again put some talent around him more talent around him in the secondary i'm i'm excited to see what he can do uh well i mentioned them multiple times so i might as well get to the draft um and just kind of rip that band-aid off because there's a lot of names that we have to do an even deeper dive into nick casario 100 percent knock this draft out of the park. They were one of my three favorite draft classes. I think we did a whole episode on that. Yep. Uh, so if you didn't listen to that, well, we're going to be recapping it again now because it's it's worthy of that. This was a phenomenal class from start to finish. Derek Stingley at third overall, I thought was absolutely worth the pick. Um, there was a lot of conversation between Stingley and Sauce, who's CB1. I don't necessarily think it matters that much because they're both really good. But Stingley, if health checked out, and it did, I thought that his potential was greater. And so third overall, fine. Sign me up. He's worth it. Kenyon Green is going to be rock solid at guard for them forever. Um, 
I would imagine if we're just talking about best five on the field, Laramie Tunsil at left tackle, Titus Howard at left guard, Justin Britt at center, Kenyon Green at right guard. Well, maybe they would want Titus Howard at right tackle. <laughs> yeah, as long as oh, you say Kenyon tough. Green is in your top five, you and I are cool. We're fine. Well, that's the thing. He's in the top five, but he played everything. So I guess it's basically, it's not necessarily like, oh, where's Kenyon Green going to play? It's more so where's everybody else going to play? Because you can put Kenyon Green anywhere and just kind of fill in the gaps. I I disagree. Green's a guard. When they played him at tackle, he looked pretty underwhelming and rightfully so he's playing out of position they put him back at guard and AM's offense took off and that was not a coincidence <laughs> it was causation green moving back inside a lot of the big runs that you saw uh from their running backs and they have several that were good were oh my god like anybody could have run through that hole Whoa. and then you you know rewind the tape and it's Kenyon Green literally pushing his guy across the face of the center and out of the frame to the other hash and there's a there's a five yard gap for the very fast Aggie running back to rip through that happened over and over again when he got back to guard when he was a tackle he struggled a little bit if people watched his tape at tackle and they saw him get picked at 15 they probably said, what the hell? That's a terrible choice by Houston. If they watched him at guard, they said exactly the same thing you did. They're going to plug him in. He's a massive talent athletically. He's going to play a long time. He's really good. No problem. Well, Isaiah Spiller was getting a lot of a lot of pub. It was like, oh, Spiller is like a top three running back in this class. And I'm like, okay, but look at who's creating the holes <laughs> that he's can you, running through. Can you <laughs> handcuff Spiller and Green when you draft them? Because if you can. this wide, yeah. Then crazy. you're great. If not, your guard better be at least that good. Yeah, young, talented, extremely athletic. I know his RAS score wasn't necessarily off the charts, but if you look at his on-field performance, his tape performance, which I think is the measuring stick for most players, but certainly for offensive linemen, at guard, a superstar. Like, can, can be probably the best, one of the best interior offensive linemen from this class within a year or two. Like, and that's not a stretch. Uh, keeping it in the state of Texas, Jalen Petrie at 37 at the top of round two. I thought he very easily could have been a first round pick, mm -hmm. um, like somewhere in the 20s. And he ended up slipping to 37. Massive value for the Texans. Great leader. Can play in the slot. Um, can play deep. Tough against the run. Great blitzer. You know, I, I kind of thought that he was destined to be a Buffalo Bill because he plays exactly like Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer, and he ended up being in Houston, so I'll take that all day. Uh, then they went back-to-back -back Bama, John Mechie, favorite of yours, and Christian Harris, who is a former DB, by the way. He did play corner in high school, which is why it makes a lot of sense that he looks so damn good in coverage on tape. He's one of the most breathtakingly fluid linebackers in coverage that I've ever seen. The problem, and the reason why he went in the third round, is he tackles like a corner as well. So that's something that has to be cleaned up uh, immediately, or he might not see the field maybe as quick as we hope. Uh, but if he can learn to tackle, by God, he's going to be awesome. Uh, Damian Pierce, another EJ Snyder favorite, uh, should compete to be the starting running back basically immediately because the main guy he's got to beat out is Marlon Mack, and I think he, he has a legit shot at doing that. Uh, Thomas Booker, favorite of the show as well. Another guy who can play anything from five technique to nose. Um, super athletic pass rusher. I think they're going to put him mainly as a three. 
and take advantage of his quickness because he was one of the five or six most athletic interior uh, defensive linemen in this whole class. Had very, very good testing numbers. And back that up when we saw him at the Shrine Bowl, he was just murdering everybody. Um, and then Tegan uh, Quiteriano, did I get that right first try? Holy shit. How about that? Uh, tight end out of Oregon State. And then Austin Deculus, a favorite of mine, who's going to be uh, likely a backup swing tackle out of LSU, um, set the LSU record for total number of starts. I, I believe it was 46. 46 or 48, which is ridiculous amount of playing time for any college player. But uh, yeah, he, he has a lot of experience as well. So overall, first pick to the last pick, phenomenal jab by Nick Casario. They got a lot of immediate starters, um, at least four starters among rookies, which for any draft class is amazing. And we could potentially have as many as six rookie starters, in my opinion. Great class by Casario. Um, great players, fit with needs, got value, got players largely who demonstrated it in college. Very few projections. I don't think any, actually, projections. Um, some folks might look at Damian Pierce running numbers and say, oh, it's a projection. No, it's because his college coach didn't know how to use him. And every time he got the ball, he was hyper-productive. Every time the other back that he was splitting equally with got the ball, did less with it. And Florida fans will tell you they were tearing their hair out. Like, why are you not just shading it to Damian Pierce? Because he always does something electric. So um, Christian Harris, uh, ascending player, his last four games in college just looked like somebody lit the fuse. Before that, I could say, yeah, potential. Um, you know, he might be, he could be. Last four games in college, really last three, he wrecked people. There were there was an entire section in the second to last game in his college career in third quarter where for like five to eight minutes he just took over mm -hmm. as a linebacker. He made every play, just harassed the offense. They couldn't get away from him. You couldn't stop him. And that wasn't how most of his college tape looked. But again, happening right at the tail end of his career, it really looked like the light had come on for some particular reason. And I'm sure the Texans saw that and said, hey, we want to we want to continue that ascent. We love what we're seeing. He can he can do it all going forward, like you said, in coverage. Um, it's it's a very, very talented class. If you didn't go back and watch that draft episode, do that now. Who who had the best draft class in the NFL? We put it out just a couple days after the draft, and uh, it was odd to be debating whether or not the Texans were going to be in one of our top three spots, but when you look at this class, it's it's not hard to figure out. Mechie, I think, again, when he heals up, he's going to be one of those guys. He's, he's not going to challenge for number one. That's not why they drafted him, but he is going to be a very solid number two or three. He can play either played both at Bama very well. And he's just going to come in. He's going to be like the, the sort of junior version of Brandon cooks in that he <laughs> he's again, as a two or three, not as a one, they didn't draft him yeah. to be that way, but he's going to come in in the role of two or three. And he's going to have not a thousand yards every year, but, He's going to be one of those guys that has six or 800 yards every year, moves around, plays slot, plays outside, does whatever they need him to do. And, it, you know, three or four years from now, you're going to be like, I don't know, John Mechie puts up numbers every year. If he can just be like diet Tyler Boyd, worth the pick, which I think he can't be. Yeah, I think if, so. If he's just that, I mean, he's, obviously he's got to recover from injury and all that kind of stuff. But if he could just be that, 
it's worth the pick. Um, now, in terms of undrafted free agent additions, um, it, not a whole lot to write home about. You know, Myron Cunningham, I think, is an intriguing pickup from Arkansas. He's got some athleticism I really like. Probably the big name that I really want to hit on here is Tristan McCollum, uh, brother of Zion McCollum. Yep. Uh, who they were, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Utah that Zion had an offer from, but decided he wanted, and he was like a four star. Yeah. Uh, and he decided he wanted to go to Sam Houston State, play with his brother, stay home, stay local. And both of these kids are just freaks. 994 RAS for Tristan McCollum. He's 6'1, 198 with a 37 and a half inch broad, 1010, uh, sorry, 1010 broad, 37 and a half inch vert, 44840. Uh, it's three cone, 672, 403 shuttle. Like he's, <laughs> I know. He's insane. He's insane yeah. as an athlete and with size. So I think he legit has a possibility to become like that that dime package tight end eraser. You know, the the big body corner whose one job is, hey, there's Travis Kelsey. Try not to die. Like that's <laughs> that's what I think he can do for them. You know, maybe not as a rookie, but eventually, you know, if he can be like more athletic Eric Rowe, that's absolutely an incredible pickup for them. And I think he he has a good chance of being that. Yeah, they they stayed home with a bunch of their UDFA picks. Uh, you know, Oklahoma State, Sam Houston, Baylor. Uh, the one that caught my eye was actually from the Northwest. Johnny Johnson the third, the wide receiver from Oregon. Bit of a one-trick pony, smaller, faster. Uh, could find a role, but um, they have a lot of depth in the wide receiving room. He's you know he's gonna have to he's gonna have to push to make it. But Tristan McCollum was certainly the I'd say the headline name, and we're talking about headline name for UDFA, so we're not, not talking about a name that even a lot of people knew, but, yeah, has the gifts, and if he can channel them, you know, immediate sort of special teams demon, and then how are you going to fit in, just like we said with their starting safeties and corners, how are you going to fit into that mix? What's your role going to be? What's your specialty going to be? Is that enough to get you on to the 53 most weeks or, you know, uh, signed up as a as an active player we'll see I doubt it as I doubt it as a rookie does he make the you know 90 man sure I think he probably does does he make the 53 man I don't know he's you know borderline practice squad might bounce up and down practice squad rules have been relaxed uh, even further this year so might see a guy like Tristan McCollum go up and down several times in his rookie year um, I, I don't think that's a bad thing if if a UDFA does that you got value for a player that you got for free. Um, in terms of floor and ceiling for this team, again, this is something we're going to be doing for every single team, talking about the ceiling of wins and the floor of wins. Every team has a range. I think the Texans' range is astronomically large. <laughs> and this could go one of two very different ways. A lot depends on what's happening with Davis Mills. A lot depends on how quickly all of these talented rookies gel because I do think they're going to be getting, I, I would say like a third to half of their starters are going to be players with three or fewer years of experience. It's going to be a very young team, talented, but, but pretty young. And so I think best case scenario, we could be looking at a nine win team here. 
I'm talking absolute best case scenario, which means they're beating the Bears. You know, they're ripping off a win from somewhere in the AFC West, whether it's the Chargers or the Raiders, maybe both. You know, maybe they're splitting with the division, potentially if they can you know, double up on Jacksonville, which is possible. Um, you know, you're looking at maybe a win against Washington. Deshaun uh, is making an appearance back in Houston December 4th, which, well, if he's even playing this year. Mm. Um, so I have to imagine the stadium is going to be quite loud for that one. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of winnable games here. And there's very few that I look at where it's like, yeah, you're fucked. Um, you know, like I, uh, the Broncos game, they're probably going to lose. That's like week two. The Chargers, they're probably going to lose that one. They'll probably lose to the Chiefs. But other than that, pretty much every game on the schedule is at least plausible to win. So I could see them being a nine-win team. I could also see them being a three-win team because I, I think Jacksonville could turn the tables on them and sweep them right back. You know, I think the Colts are good enough to sweep them. I think the Titans are good enough to sweep them. I think it's very possible that, that you know, maybe they only beat Washington and maybe Jacksonville once and, you know, maybe Tennessee once. And that's it for the year. Like, I could absolutely see that, too. So they're a very hard team to predict. Um, I lean more towards the positive side than the negative side. But, boy, I, I think it could go either way here. I don't disagree. My range is a little bit tighter, but we have some of the same reasoning, which is uh, progression isn't linear for teams either. And we talk about that with players all the time because they were good and overachieved, even as a four-win team last year, doesn't automatically tack three or four wins on. I think it could. And I honestly think that's probably about their ceiling. If they win... Seven games, I think that's my ceiling. If they win eight, I'll be surprised. Again, because so many things have to go right. And although there have been changes at the top, I think they matter less than some other teams. The defense is largely going to be the same. They have the same defensive coordinator. He happens to have the head coach title. And they have the same offensive coordinator. I think with free agency, the losses and the additions pretty much balance out. I think they're about the same. I don't feel like it's, oh, they added so many good guys. They, I've, I think they've replaced their losses in free agency. We talked about the draft class being amazing, but rookies are rookies. Very few of them make massive impact in their first year. Some do. Could Stingley do? Yeah, he absolutely could. Um, could Pierce do it? I think he absolutely could as well. Is a running back going to power you to three or four more wins? Probably not. And when you look at what they did last year, again, with basically the same offensive and defensive coordinators, they gave up 53 touchdowns. Uh, they have some additions on defense. That number might come down a little. And they scored 31. They have some additions on offense, but I don't feel like they got 20 touchdowns worth of additions on offense. So I don't know, they... man. Nico Collins could be... <laughs> Like, fucking amazing it's possible Nico Collins, 15 <laughs> touchdowns automatic fantasy football winner no i you know i think they'll be better so my my ceiling is seven i think my floor is five i think they can win five games one more than last year could i see them winning your three game floor yeah i there is absolutely a path to that occurring 
so my range is a little bit tighter than yours, but we're seeing the same things. I think they, you know, there's a lot of rose colored glasses about the draft. I don't think it makes up, you know, eight extra wins from last year or seven extra wins from last year. So my ceiling is seven. My floor is five and I could see them fitting right in. And honestly, if they do that, I think it's a pretty good year. They win seven games and Davis Mill improves. Their rookie oh. class gets the snaps in, plays well. Texans like, fans would be ecstatic with that. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of people would see that as as not, you know, meeting their potential. I think that's absolutely meeting their potential. Games in the NFL are hard to win. The other teams paid too. Uh, if they reel off seven wins this year after four last year and show improvement at important spots like quarterback, very solid season for Houston. Yeah, so it's it's an intriguing, cautiously exciting uh, time to be a Texans fan. Uh, fascinated to see what they do this year, especially in an AFC South that is low-key very entertaining and very close. Uh, that's going to be one of the divisions that is not decided till week 18. I can almost guarantee you that. So um, thank you all for watching. We'll be back tomorrow with our third AFC South team. It's going to be the Indianapolis Colts, which potentially could be looking at a rather deep run this season we're going to look at everything they did to set themselves up for that uh and yeah we'll be back here same time tomorrow until then later take care